Welcome to the Flyman Fishing Show, where we talk fly fishing, fly tying, and everything in between. I'm your host, Scotty Davis. Thanks for joining us today. We are uh, talking with a familiar face, Keith Rose Ennis. He's the uh, co-founder of Alphonse Fishing Lodge and uh, basically the guy that every kid wants to be when they grow up. So thanks for talking to us today. Yeah, great to be on, online with you guys. Yeah, man. Uh, so how did uh, the whole Alphonse Fishing Company get started? I know you were one of the co-founders of that. Uh, so I've been in the Seychelles for the last sort of 22 years. Um, it all started as a, as a sort of uh, um, a vacation job uh, where I would uh, go out and just as a, as a youngster go out and, and uh, go uh, on board boats with, with guests and kind of show them how to fly fish. Um, and then get to fish at the same time. And that sort of progressed into uh, uh, various other uh, you know, businesses later. So um, after that, we obviously got, got involved in, in, in uh, um, pioneering a lot of the outer islands. And that was uh, after I had uh, done quite a bit of extensive traveling. Um, I worked in, in Russia, um, I worked in the UK, and I worked in, in Farlows of Pall Mall. Um, and I actually did a few trips out to places like Clipperton and all those kind of places. And realized that actually, you know what, uh, um, what, what is the point of traveling so much when we've got much better fly fishing so close by? Um, so that basically led me on into the guiding game and uh, um, slowly, you know, um, the weeks built and it got to a stage where um, we at one stage with various different liverboards um, in the Seychelles. Um, and that went on for about five or six years. So um, then obviously the piracy came about. So um, that, that sort of stopped business altogether. You know, when you're working on a liveaboard and there, there's pirates around, you know, you can't operate. So we kind of shut up our business down and we moved to a place called St. Brandon's and did that for a little while before um, I decided that I was going to part ways with my, my, my previous uh, partners and I was going to go on my own venture. Um, and the venture would be more orientated around um, holding the leases um, owning the lodges uh, and, and building a, a portfolio of, of uh, unique destinations that are all conservation oriented. So, uh, you know, from day one, it was about putting in conservation efforts and making sure that we manage those fisheries for, for long-term reasons. Um, you know, the thing is that when you're running a liverboard, you, you generally just rock up for, say, an extended period of time, so three or four months, you would uh, fly your guests in, you fish those destinations and you'd pack your boat up and you'd leave. You leave those destinations to whoever would come by and, and there's no sort of protection in place. And, uh, you know, it often happened where we would rock up at, at a destination and realize that, hey, listen, there's been other boats here or maybe illegal fishing or, or, or fishermen there, whatever it is, and the fishing is not so good anymore. So my, my uh, whole vision changed quite substantially um, about uh, in, in September 2012. And that's when I met my current business partner, um, Murray Collins, and uh, he was already invested in, in Seychelles and we decided on a path going forward. And uh, obviously, as, as I mentioned before. Very cool. It's uh, you guys have definitely put the Seychelles in like the top of the, the destination map. Um, I lost you there on the first part of that. It just it went blank there. Just repeat that. Oh yeah, I was saying that you guys have definitely put the Seychelles on the map as far as like the top, top tier destinations. Yeah, I don't think it's us putting it on the map. I just think it's the fishing puts it on the map. I mean, if you've been out to the Seychelles and you experience the ferocity of a GT and the, you know, all the different different species out there, and you know the the, the sheer mass of fish, 
and you know the, the variety and anything can happen at any particular given time. When you add those all together, you get an amazing experience. Yeah. And you know the thing is with the Seychelles, it, it makes it quite easy for us because if you've been there once, you're going to come back. Yeah. So that, that that makes it makes the, you know carrying seasons over and over much easier. So most people come there for the giant trevally, or is it just most people come for just the experience of everything? Yeah, a lot of people come for for experience of everything. So I would say that a lot of people do come out to tick off species. So you know, and one of those species would be a giant trevally. So you know, often you get get guests that arrive and say, "Okay, right, well, where are the GTs?" kind of thing. So we, no, but once they're there and they've caught their first GT and they realize, you know, what's available, the different kinds of species on offer, they obviously then get attracted into the various different species. Yeah. Um, you know, you know the thing, the thing about the Seychelles, it's got an incredible amounts of bonefish and uh, sometimes too much. So, you know, a week of just pounding away at bonefish might, be not, might not be in one's cup of tea. But when you're fishing for bonefish, you have the permit in amongst them. You have the GTs coming in to eat them. You have the, the milkfish on the flats close by. Um, so it, it is exciting. So the GTs are coming on the flats to chase and eat the bonefish? The GTs eat everything. Yeah. So they believe that they're obviously the kings or the gangsters of the flat, flats, as we like to call them. Um, you know, they're obviously they, they, they're predatory. So they, they, they have a symbiotic relationship with, with sharks and with rays. So you have quite a cool, uh, you know, scenario that plays out quite often where You'll either have a giant trevally coming to feed on, on, on a school of bonefish or mullet or whatever it is, or you'll see a, a GT that's swimming on the back of a shark or on the back of a ray. So there's various different scenarios. But you know, one of the most important scenarios about catching GTs in the Seychelles is you know you get the opportunities on foot. So you know, one unique opportunity is in the in the surf bank, for instance, where you get the giant trevally coming in on the wave, surfing down, and you're have to get ready because it comes in so quickly you've got to make that cost and then you get you get the uh, opportunities of them when they on the white sand and you can see them from a mile away you know this blue fish coming along and he's feeding uh, you know on this beautiful white hot, set, hot sand so that's that's what uh, Seychelles is synonymous with is is the is the is, is fishing to these species on foot yeah, that, that's one of the things that always attracted me was the variety and seeing everybody with the multiple rods, have fishing their eight weight, carrying their twelve weight, just kind of being ready for anything. So the, yeah, sometimes it can be a little bit a little bit tricky where you end up with a big uh, big knot of uh, nine weight mixed in with a twelve weight, but uh, yeah. that adds the excitement. A logistical nightmare. <laughs> so you caught the uh, first bumphead parrotfish on the fly. Is that correct? Yeah, so I was uh, a part of the, the group of guides that worked on catching them. And uh, I was lucky enough to have a guest who landed the first one. Uh, I wasn't the first guide to guide a guy into the first one being hooked. Um, and we hooked numerous. I mean, we don't even know who hooked the first one. Um, because we didn't understand the dynamics of how we were hooking them, whether we were foul hooking them or whether we were hooking them in the mouth. Because often, if you had a fish on, it, it would you would uh, either straighten the hook or bite, bite the hook off or break the line. And quite often it would come back with a scale. So you would say, okay, well, maybe I'm just snagging the fish, they're not eating it. And only once we landed a, a bump head did we realize that, uh, yes, no, we're actually hooking them in the mouth. Because um, yeah. they are quite quite spooky, so you can't get too close to them. So often the parts are quite far, so you've got no idea where he's hooked. I guess you got to get the hook past that beak too, right? 
yeah, so you know, for for he's got a little soft spot in the size of his mouth. So you know, you've got to, you, you sort of cast a fly to an area where the most amount of fish will swim, swim by, and you obviously just watch your 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 the tip of your fly line. And as it sort of moves, you, you come tight. And then because often if they pick that fly up, they're going to bite it and realize that it's not coral or, or crustacean, whatever it is, it's going to spit it out. So generally you have a lot of, you know, sort of uh, false strikes, but, you know, rather be proactive and, and hook one or two, then, then, and then be a bit slower and not hook any. I mean, those things get big too, right? What's, what's the average size of those things? Whew. No, there's, 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 uh, uh, they, they do get very big, uh, but Average size, I would say about 30 to 40 pounds in the flats. Um, but uh, yeah, no, they get a lot bigger than that. They We've seen them 100 pounds at least. Oh, geez. What is, so why do they have that hook on their beak? Is that for picking coral? You said something about coral? No, they, they just pick coral all day. That's all they do. And what kind of flies? They do crustacean coral in, in amongst, the, in amongst the, uh, uh, the weed. So if they see a crab, they're going to eat it, uh, that, those kind of things. So it's a... It's, uh, we use, a, we use a variety of crab patterns, a um, variety of, of weight. Obviously, sometimes the heavier ones um, are when the water is a bit deeper. But generally, you want to fish them in about 30 centimeters of, of water. So probably like just a bit more than a foot, a foot and a half of water. Then they're comfortable. Their backs are out. You've got a good chance of them seeing the, seeing the fly. And so we use uh, combinations of, of uh, tan, white, and, and orange, or just like a singular color or any of those. Uh, and yeah, just put it in front of them and, and don't move it. Just keep keep still and, and make sure there's flies on the bottom and then just wait and see if he eats it. Man, that sounds like fun. <laughs> the triggers. That's crazy, uh, it seems it? like most yeah. people I know that have been there multiple times, they seem to seem to focus in on the trigger fish. Um, I guess the variety of those and and the fight, those are pretty hard to catch too. Well, so the thing with the trigger fish is, is you know, hooking them is the easy part. Uh, so okay, because he's first of all, he's actually he's, he's like a, a set of bolt cutters with with a tail. So you cast the fly fly in front of him, he he he, he locks onto it, and then you've got to try and get him to uh, keep it in his mouth, in, in, and then pull the hook into an area which is quite soft, uh, which is the sides once again. So and he's got he's got massive teeth like like a human being does. So he he, he munches on that, that fly. So often you'll just get back the eye of the hook. Or you'll get back a, a, a flower where the hook's flat, or there's no hook. Um, and then once you finally hook him, you know, you're off the mark, they're incredibly fast because they've got those, those adipose fins or the top fins, which actually move in conjunction with each other. So extremely quick off the mark. Then you're obviously adding the fact that you have to fish light leader because you have to entice them because they're quite spooky. Um, and then they really enjoy coral. So you almost have to pull as hard as you can to the extent where you're going to break him off to try and keep him away from the coal. So often you'll see, you know, a lot of photographs or, or film of, you know, when you hook a, a, a trigger fish, you'll see the guide uh, off, off the, behind it, the trigger fish with a net trying to get it before it jumps in the hole. <laughs> That's awesome. But also, I mean, the thing about trigger fishing is they're so, it's so, they're so incredible to fish for because, you know, they, 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 you're fishing for them in extremely shallow water. You know, often their backs and tails are completely out the water with, with their, their, their tails waving, almost welcoming you over. And then once you get very close to them, they're extremely spooky and very hard to hook. So it's kind of addictive in a way. So once you once it, the, the, the trigger fishing bites, it really does bite. It's kind of the same same type flies, like Alplexos and little crab patterns for those guys? 
No, no, but uh, very similar. So um, we will fish a combination of alflexos, uh, sort of uh, cracked crabs, sort of, sort of soft body crabs, those kind of things. Um, they'll, eat a, they'll eat a bonefish fly um, as long as it's fully dressed. Um, yeah, it, it all depends on the depth of the water and, and what mood they're in. I mean, some days they, they absolutely go crazy for orange and other days they won't touch it. So it's all about finding the mix of what's the right, right uh, uh, fly color for them. But more importantly, obviously the weight. You need that fly to get in the bottom. If you've got current going across the flat or a finger flat um, and, and that fly's not in the bottom, is not going to eat it. So the the milkfish gets a lot of attention down there too. That's uh seems to be extremely hard to fish for. Oh, so the the milkfish, uh, you know, Alphonse Island is accredited with the first uh, milkfish ever caught in fly. You know, that was back in the days of of uh, you know, I think it was like two thousand and nine, and it was uh, a guy a guy called Anna Matia and Wayne Hesler, and between the two of them, they deciphered on how to catch these these milkies and fly. And in those days, you'd catch them or see them a lot more in the channels, the narrow channels. Generally now, we see them in the narrow, narrow channels, but we generally catch more of them um, close to, just in the drop off of the flats. Um, so probably like, what, about uh, 50 to 100 yards away from the actual flat on the ocean side. And then you get the huge amounts. And there, it's the same thing. It's about, it's about targeting uh, um, the most amount of fish that will pass through a single, single area. So you, you, you've got to get that fly to sink to the level of where the fish are feeding and try and uh, intercept those fish coming past there and just sort of, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a, a incidental eat, if it makes sense. They're just all feeding along and then they see that the, the fly and they eat it. And the, the, the fly we use is an algae replica, uh, often tied with, with, with ram's wool, not sort of a olive color or a, or a um, chartreuse olive mix. Um, and then obviously just wasting the fly to get to the right depth and uh, then obviously dealing with the leader. So you need to decide on what, what breaking strategy do you want to fish, whether you want to have less hookups and more lands or less lands and more hookups. So, you know, once you hook them, you know, your chances around about one in 10. Um, there's a couple of factors that play come into play. Number one, they jump. Number two, they, they think that they, they are a GT at some stage in the flight. And number three, they think they're a tuna at some stage in the fight. So they'll find any kind of coral, they'll go into it. Um, and they, they often uh, um, sort of go down deep and just sit in the current and you can't lift them. Now, there, there's a rumor, well, I don't know if it's a rumor, there's a, a wife tell us, but it's not proven yet, um, that they don't have any lactic acid buildup, um, which is, they say, is the reason why they fight for so long. So if, if you are unlucky and you hook a 25 pounder and he's full of gas, you're going to sit for an hour uh, fighting a fish, pulling as hard as you can. And the deeper he goes, the harder he pulls. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of luck of the draw. Some fish, you know, you can land in so 15, 20 minutes if you, if you get him the first time you come to the boat. Um, I know of, of fish which have been over 50 pounds, which the guys have fought for, for three hours oh. and landed, landed in two and a half hours. Um, when you see a milkfish, you, you realize, you know, you, you can see why they fight so hard. You know, they build for speed. You know, they've got this massive forked tail and streamlined body, even like a sort of a, um, sort of a domed eye casing, which comes over. And then they've obviously got the same um, gill set up as a bonefish, where the, the, the gill uh, plates fold over each other. So it, it allows them, obviously, a lot more water to pass through you know, when they're filter feeding and when they're fighting and so forth. So they, did, they definitely are the hardest 
fighting fish pike were found without a doubt in the ocean. There is no comparison. Um, a tarpon of that size won't, won't even fight 10% of the time. Um, I, I would say I would say you can compare them to an ocean-going um, um, equivalent of a, of a bonefish. Um, they've got the same kind of speed, the same kind of stamina, um, just a hell of a lot bigger. Yeah. You say they jump, do they jump like a tarpon, or is it more kind of like a greyhounding jump? They ground, so you generally get two or three jumps out of out of a fish, um, and maybe sometimes more, but some a lot a lot of the time less. You know, often you'll you'll hook a fish, and you can see on the jump whether you've might have snagged him or not, or whether he's in the mouth and the way he jumps, um, and and then he's generally one or two, and he's he's down, um, and then it's the fight. Nice. What kind of rods and rods and gear are you using for those milkfish? Uh, 10 weight, generally yeah. 10 weight. Uh, I don't like to fish 11 weight um, because, you know, obviously going to part on a light leader a lot easier and, and the fly line uh, lands a lot heavier. So, yeah. Sorry, my kids are busy killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> How old are they? <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter's busy giving my boy a belting there. Good. <laughs> he probably deserves it. <laughs> he does deserve it. <laughs> Do they fish with you too? Yeah, they do. Um, I can't take them fishing uh, at the same time, obviously. They'll kill each other, but uh, um, yeah, they do They do fish. Pano's actually, my boy is actually taken into it quite nicely, so he's, he's able to fish with me, and I, I just stand aside and watch him watch him go about and catching them. Yeah, I'm quite proud. The last uh, trip we did, uh, um, in two hours, he pulled, he caught 11 bonefish. Holy two cow. hours, and I didn't even have to assist him. He tied his fly on himself. He's a 10-year-old. He tied, at that stage, he was a nine-year-old, so he tied his flies on himself. He uh, selected the fly he wanted to fish with. Um, obviously, I had to assist him with landing, landing the bonefish, but uh, uh, no, handing the bonefish once he's, he'd fought it. But uh, yeah, very proud, proud moment for me. Yeah, um, my sure. daughter, she prefers offshore fishing. She likes to windship. So uh, when, when uh, we're fishing often for the pot, for the kitchen or whatever, you know, she likes to pull, pull the, the, the job fish up from the deep or... Or she really enjoys fishing for tuna or sailfish and those kind of things. So she sounds like she's got it figured out too. <laughs> she, she's the strong one. Y'all have a lot of tuna <laughs> off the coast there. No, we do. So you know the beauty about the Seychelles is that you know you can catch a, a bonefish on the flats, and ten minutes later you can be teasing for sailfish, um, because obviously you know in the Seychelles they're all coral atolls, and a coral uh, they're all coral atolls, and a coral atoll is basically. You know, millions of years ago, you have a volcano which sticks out of the water. And uh, because the, the volcanic matter is heavier than the seabed, it subsides. And as it subsides into the water, you know, obviously the coral it keeps growing. And as the lip of the, of the volcano subsides under, the, under the, the water, under the ocean, the coral grows up to the sun. So what you do is get this coral, all this coral growing up towards the sun. And then uh, once, you, once the coral's on the surface, you get the deposit of sand. And then as the sand deposits more and more, the islands grow. And then obviously, you know, floating coconuts and so forth wash up on the shore and then they, they uh, um, create the vegetation. And uh, yeah, and that's, that's how they, they started. So basically because of that, you have sheer drop-offs very close to the flats. So for instance, if, you, uh, um, if you're fishing a place like a stove, you will be walking in knee-deep water and literally... Um, 30 yards away from you, it drops, drops to 60 meters. And with 100 yards, it drops to 1,000 meters. Oh, my so God. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's, uh, it's incredible. 
so you can catch big fish in little boats is what you're telling me. Yeah, you can. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and y'all are big fans of the Shilton reels down there at Alphonse. No, look, I mean, uh, I've been fishing Shiltons for, for 15 years. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a brand which I've, I've, you know, sort of did a lot of my pioneering with, and I've never been let down with, with a Shilton. So, uh, I trust them. So I think it's like, uh, you know, you can't, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Right. Um, so I know that uh, if I have uh, four reels in my bag and I go to anywhere around the world, um, I have no issues with a reel. I won't have any failures. Yeah. Um, the worst thing that can happen is, is I can get a bit of water on the pork track. Uh, that, that's that. And uh, you're never going to have a failure. So from that point of view, I, I love them. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like we like to uh, compare them to compare them to the, the old land cruisers or land rovers, not land rovers, land cruisers. You know, they're gone forever. You only sort of, you only sort of wear them in after a hundred thousand miles. So they, they, now, they, now they're starting to drive, you know? So now from that point of view, I love them. I've been fishing the same reels, the same Shilton reels for 15 years. I still have the exact same SL range, which is in my bag. Um, some of the reels are actually get, get loaned to guests on a daily basis. So, you know, the Shiltons have been through uh, um, the testing phase where, you know, some of the reels have been fishing for 15 years. Some of the, some of the reels um, that I have are in, in the Seychelles are, are out in the water every single day for eight months of the year. And they're working perfectly. And those are reels which I fished, you know, started fishing 15 years ago. So for me, you know, if, if, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Right. Yeah. And having trust in your gear like that, especially in the exotic locations, pretty huge knowing it's not going to break and you right, can exactly no, there's nothing, nothing worse than arriving on location and your reels your reels locked up yeah um there's obviously a, a big debate that goes on about uh, sealed drags and, and open drags and, and i agree uh, you know there's obviously the right kind of reel for the right place um so um you know give me one second again my children are killing each other again <laughs> give me a second yeah sorry man this is getting a bit frustrating now Oh, I got my daughter's still about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so um, where was I? Okay, so yeah, um, yeah obviously there is a debate about about uh, uh, closed uh, sealed drags versus uh, uh, cork drags or whatever other kind of drags. And uh, my my biggest issue with with a sealed drag is that sometimes I do fail when you're traveling purely not because of the fault of the of, of the drag, purely because of when you're flying in small planes. And they don't pressurize correctly. Often you get the movement of air inside that cylinder, which creates the seal drag. And then once you get to a location, it's it's not. And there's no way of unlocking it without sending it back to the to the manufacturer. So that's that's the only only sort of downfall that I, I have with seal drags. It happens seldom. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it happens all the time. You know, we all the other real drags with uh, have seal, all the other real brands have seal drags. 99% of the time they work perfectly fine. Um, you know, arrival location, no issues, and so forth. And uh, yeah, it's it's just I suppose it's just personal preference. And uh, um, for me, it's about not having any risk uh, in in having a, a drag uh, fail on you. The other thing is when you're when you're on the on the flats, um, if you have an issue with a reel, you know, it, you should be able to uh, to take it apart with your with your leatherman and fix it, uh, which we can uh, quite easily with a short and you just take the back knob, put it in your mouth, and tangle the drag knob and pull it apart and do whatever you need to do and put it back together again and it's solved. You know, um, it's easy to open up, you know, say for instance, if you get line trapped somewhere or you've got a bit of sand inside the reel, 
or whatever it is. So yeah, it's just it's just that that, that uh, simplicity of the real ability to solve all problems. Yeah, I saw some uh, recent footage too of you using a bamboo rod. How you like those? Um, yeah, so I went on a bit of a, a bamboo spree about uh, uh, two or three years ago. Uh, actually, about three years ago, and uh, um, it was with the sextant uh, TNTs. Um, um, a guy called Troy who who makes them. I mean, they're absolute works of works of art. They are um, beautiful, and they are really beautiful. And I thought, okay, well, let me let me go and put these up against the. Actually, the discussion started a year earlier. And I said to Troy and to, to Neville, the owner of, of TNT, I said, listen, do you think we could catch a, a giant trevally on a bamboo? They were like adamant that it would be no problem. So they said, okay, we'll make you one. So they said about making the bamboo uh, rod. And uh, um, I received it. And I thought, geez, this thing is amazing. I mean, if you can pull a, pull a GT on it, you can catch almost anything on it. So I went about fishing for white marlin, caught white marlin on, on the bamboo rod, caught sailfish caught uh, uh, um, milkfish, permit, um, barracuda, obviously some big, big GTs. Uh, and yeah, I haven't stopped since then. So um, I've caught all the, almost all the species that you can catch in the Seychelles um, on them and, so, and a couple of others. So yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a bamboo rod. It, it's, it's not pleasant to, to cast. I mean, <laughs> you can't hide the fact that it's, 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 is that it's not pleasant to cast. But you know, once you hook a fish, it's, it's, it's quite unique, the response in, in the way the fish, uh, uh, the, the way the rod responds to the fish. Uh, you know, it's, I suppose it's pretty close to fishing with a, with a uh, um, um, fiberglass rod or something along those, those, uh, those lines. But it's you know, crazy good experience, really enjoyable. And I'd still, from time to time, take the bamboo rods out for, for a whirl. Yeah. Yeah, they need to work out every now and then. Yeah, you need to fix them. So um, is Blue Safari, that's a new venture for you guys? No, so, so you know, over the years, I, it's about being responsible at the destinations. And, you know, obviously, you know, you need to earn a certain amount of revenue in order to be able to pay the bills at the end of the day. So, um, you know, we got to a stage where, you know, things are very expensive. In the Seychelles, things are extremely expensive. You know, fuel's expensive. And planes are expensive, you know, all those kind of things, staffing and flying staff around and employing staff and so forth, very expensive. So we got to a stage where, you know, you don't really want to put too much pressure on the flats. So we decided, okay, instead of increasing the rods, let's rather try and earn additional revenue. Um, and, you know, when you walk here in the flats, the Seychelles, you know, you, you're out and you're going, my goodness, you know, I, I don't even need to hold the rod. I'd be amazed at the amount of turtles that are swimming around me, manta rays that are swimming around me. Sharks are, that are all around me. Um, you know, there's no real reason to, to have a, 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 a rod in my hand. So on the basis of that, we set about setting up this eco-orientated uh, um, business, which is called Blue Safari. And we do, we do activities for, for leisure-orientated guests or a safari-orientated guests or diving-orientated guests, where we do a, very, a, a big range of, of, of activities from flats, walks, walking on the flats and showing them uh, the turtles, the rays, the sharks and so forth, different crustaceans, to uh, going on the boat and showing them all the spinner, spinner dolphins, whales, manta rays and so forth. We even get in the water with, the, with, with manta rays and sharks. Um, we tease up uh, sailfish and then we get everyone to jump in the water with the sailfish. Oh, cool. Um, there's so many different activities which we offer. And then obviously you have the snorkeling, 
which is incredible in the Seychelles, and then the diving. So there's all these amazing things that, that, that non-fishers can do and what out in the Seychelles. And obviously, uh, um, showing this to everybody and showing, showing the couples and families that there are activities for the family, it, it frees up the, 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 the anglers in the family to go fishing and then have their partners or family go and do diving and, and all the other kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great business. Uh, it's been rewarding in the fact that it, it offers, it allows us to earn more revenue and, and attract more people to the Seychelles and in return, they're paying conservation oriented uh, levies and, and donations. And we're able to make a bigger difference in, in donating to foundations that protect our, our seas. Very cool. That's awesome. The uh, Seychelles, didn't they recently get uh, government protection? Yes, yeah, so they, they did a debt swap. Um, and there's a, is a large portion of, of the um, marine environment that is now protected. Um, we're still going through the planning stages of the marine spatial planning and, and trying to implement these, these protected areas. But it, it, it's obviously, you know, we need to take into account commercial fishing and make sure that we don't, we don't uh, put them out too much. And then obviously we need to obviously create the set of rules uh, in, in accordance with what should happen at the different destinations. So there's obviously different uh, levels of protection. Uh, but the good thing is that it's, it's, it's in progress. And yesterday I had another workshop with, with the government. Um, so it's, it's great to see, you know, we've come a long way from... Um, 20 years when I was 20 years ago when I started in the Seychelles, there was no protection. Any boat can rock up at any destination and they can do whatever they want. To a stage where now there's rod limits, which are which I uh, um, agreed upon. There's, there's certain protection where boats have to get permission to go through certain atolls, um, and there's anchorage sites, and there's there's ranges on the islands, and the, the you know and there's the coast guard that, uh, that that patrols the areas for illegal fishing and so forth. So it really has come along. It's taken a long time, but it really has come along. Uh, and yeah, and a lot of the destinations have foundations which protect them. So there's research going on in all the different, uh, different islands. And I think one of the most important uh, things in the Seychelles is that they only allow, on the outer islands, they only allow one operator, not numerous operators. So that operator can set a set, set of rules for their guests and they have to abide by those rules. And that's, that's, that's a, a big uh, uh, factor which has helped us protect the destinations. That's incredible. It's awesome. You're doing so much work for that. <clears throat> Place deserves to be protected for sure. Yeah, so, it does. No, the, the thing is that, that the Seychelles needs to be protected um, as much above water as below, below, below water, as we have obviously a lot of terrestrials. So, yeah, that's, that's the beauty about the Seychelles. So, how did you? Um, how did you get started fly fishing? You grew up in what part of Africa? So South I grew up in the Eastern Cape. Yeah, Eastern Cape in South Africa. Um, my family's uh, from Zimbabwe and Scotland. So my grandfather on the one side uh, is Scottish and went to Rhodesia, then left Rhodesia and went to, went to South Africa. And on the other side, my father, uh, my grandfather, great-grandfather is Scottish. And, but then my family came across to South Africa. And then my father went across the Rhodesian War and fought in the war and met my mother who was Rhodesian and we all came back to South Africa. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of movement around the world. Um, my grandfather has always been a, a, a fly fisherman or always was a fly fisherman. Grew up in Scotland, salmon fishing and trout fishing. Came across to, to, uh, um, to Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe now, and uh, continued fly fishing and, and obviously uh, um, and continued doing it his whole life until when he finally passed away 
about 10 years ago, he had moved to New Zealand where he was fly fishing. So he was a very integral part in my, in my upbringing um, where I'd fish with him a lot um, um, from a fly fishing point of view. My father is a, is, is a game fisherman, so he likes to fish offshore. So I did a lot of offshore fishing with him. And then uh, um, I had you know, various other friends in the area that we lived and we'd do a lot of uh, conventional fishing, rock and surf, we call it, which is for shark, sharks and so forth from the shore. So it is a broad, broad spectrum of, of, of fishing, but I always knew that I was gonna be, it was gonna be fly fishing. That was my main focus and the, the thing that I loved. Um, I did, I did please my parents by, by doing a, a degree or a diploma in, in advertising and playing rugby during that period and so forth. But inevitably it was just to pass time that to get to the UK and to find my feet and decide how I was, I was going to get into this game of guiding. Um, and that's how I did it. I went, uh, I managed to get a visa to go to the UK. I worked for two years in a, in a, in a, in a fishing tackle shop called Farlows of Pall Mall. I met all the amazing people that I, I did. And through that, managed to get a job um, in Russia uh, on the Panoi River. And uh, I spent uh, four wonderful seasons there where I ended up as the head guide. That was and, your first uh, guiding job? That, that was my, well, not really my first guiding job. I was already guiding sort of uh, ad hoc in the Seychelles, but I wouldn't say quite professional in that stage. But then, you know, through uh, learning some skills in Russia and, and at the same time, guiding in, in, in uh, um, the Seychelles, you know, half the year would be in the Seychelles, half the year in Russia. You know, I managed to pick up some skills and, and build my client base. That's awesome. I was um, talking to Martin this morning. You know, Martin grew up in Rhodesia as well. And I don't think he knew that about oh. you. I was like, yeah, Keith's granddad, you know, it was read off your bio. He's, he worked at Troutbeck or ran Troutbeck. And Martin's... Yeah, so... so yeah, you tried back in Yanga, so it's quite a famous, famous trout area. Yeah. Yeah. So Martin's when I told him that he kind of lit up. He said, "I caught my first trout there when I was nine years old." Oh, Apparently, him yeah. and some boys went and borrowed a rowboat and rode out there and just destroyed the trout. So. Yeah. No, it's amazing how how closely knit all these trout uh, you know fraternities are. So the funny thing is that my my great 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 grandfather founded a, a, a town called King Williamstown. And in the area, there was a set of dams and the dams uh, um, were run by a, a organization or a club called FAS, Frontier Acclimatization Society, Frontier Acclimatization Society. Um, and they were responsible for all the trout which went up into Africa. So from this little town in South Africa, they would train or, or yeah, they would send not train by train the trout up into Rhodesia and all the trout in Rhodesia got stocked that way. So it's, it's funny how, you know, I, I come from King Williamstown. I was born in King Williamstown and my grandfather, you know, obviously ended up in Troutbeck in those areas and all the trout actually came from a, a, a lake or a dam very close to where, where I was born. That's crazy. Um, so the, the, what's the Lesotho? Is that the trout place I'm thinking of in Africa? Basutu has got trout, yeah. It's also got very good uh, stocks of, of uh, yellowfish. Um, it's a it's a it's a mountainous kingdom. It's it's got you know sheer cliff faces. It goes up to a thousand, I think thousand nine hundred meters above sea level, so very high. Um, but it has got trout in the, in the streams and rivers there, but also indigenous uh, yellowfish. Nice. 
Um, so your grandfather also had a fly company, didn't he? Uh, yeah, so, so I think once he left Rhodesia um, and, and left his, his business behind there, like everyone did, um, he came to the Eastern Cape and decided, well, he needs to pass time. And he started, uh, sorry, no, that's not true. So when, when, when he was in Rhodesia, um, he, was, uh, he had a company called Harry, Stewart, Harry Stewart's Fishing Flyers in the Nyangi area. Um, he had a whole bunch of fly tires out there. And uh, that, that when, he just, when, he had to, when everyone had to leave Rhodesia, uh, they left all of that behind. And uh, he brought his skills, obviously, across to uh, um, South Africa. And he, he didn't actually set up a, another factory in South Africa. He basically just tied um, commercially himself for almost, I think, 15 or 20 years. Wow. Under that name, Harry Ferry? No, sorry. I know, Harry Stewart's Fishing Flies. Gotcha. Yeah, we were looking them up. You ever seen that book? Yeah, I have. Yeah, they're all those flies are all over that book. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't have a copy of that book, but I've seen it a few times. Nice. Yeah, he, he he's accredited with quite a few uh, of of the well known South African flies, um, like the Amelia's Taddy and all sorts of beetle patterns and nymph patterns. So he was quite he was quite creative in, in his ability to create patterns that caught fish. Um, and and dare I say he he was pretty famous in, in, in South African terms, trout fishing terms. Not that there's many of us in South Africa. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so tiger fish, you obviously done a lot of tiger fishing as well. That's my dream fish. I think if I could do anything tomorrow, it would be go tiger fishing. What's so that? The like? beauty about tiger fishing is that you know I, I still believe that they're the hardest um, biting fish. So you're taking fish. So, you know, obviously tiger fishing, the water's not, not always clear. Sometimes you get to, to side fish to tiger fish, but very rarely. Often you're fishing to structure. So you, you're fishing away and the next minute you get a tiger fish eat. So I, I think they're, they're unlike any other species where once they've eaten something, they, they decelerate. They kind of just continue to accelerate. accelerate. So often when, you, when, you, when you're fishing with tiger fish, it'll just be like, a, you know, one strip and you've broken off. Um, he's eaten it so hard. They're so ferocious in the way they eat that sometimes you'll, you'll, you won't even get the tip of your fly line back. They've come from the wrong side to eat the fly and they've, they've picked up your fly line and just bit your fly line off as well. Oh, so, you know, the great thing about, it's a great thing about it. They're extremely ferocious and they jump a hell of a lot. Um, and add that to the fact that they, they live in the most wild and pristine areas you know, with all these wild creatures and animals around you, crocodiles, hippos, buffalo, lion, uh, leopard, all those kind of things. You know, it's, it really is a unique experience, especially when you go and you experience, uh, you know, the Tanzanian rivers, um, where they are a lot smaller than the Zambezi, all those the other wider rivers you can fish for tiger fish on. You know, they're unique, uh, meandering, narrow rivers, um, and you know you can cross across them most of the time, and you get these big fish that are in these these, these rivers, and it's really exciting. You know, you you, you can look in the bank and see a, a crocodile or a lion or a, or a, 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 a leopard. And two minutes later, you hooked up to a massive tiger fish. Yeah, I think that's 90% of it is me. It's not exactly the fish, but where you are and what you're doing. It's, it's incredible being in that place, I think. Yeah. I'll do, I'll you know, do for, it. For me, yeah, for me, you know, you know, as you progress in your life, I think, you know, catching the big fish, you know, it is a big draw card. But I think you miss out so much. You know, if, you, if you're able to take part in, in or absorb all these different destinations, what they actually have, not even worrying about the fishing, 
you know, you, you, you tend to have a much better experience. You know, if you go to a place like Seychelles and you're able to actually realize where you are, how far out of, you know, normal uh, labs you are, you know, how far away from civilization you are, and take in, you know, how wild these places are, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it really adds to the experience. Yeah. Um, I'll put links up to all your websites too. The movie you did on Golden Masir was amazing. The scenery of that place. How was that, that whole experience? Yeah, once again, I was just lucky to be invited on a trip. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine that I've known for many years, the guy who owns Pinoy, Ilya Shervich, uh, he invited me on the trip. So uh, um, I was just a tag along. Uh, but experiencing, you know, those, those amazing uh, rivers and uh, these massive fish um, in these, these big rivers um, was, was an incredible experience. You know, you know that you got one shot when you walk up on those fish, you can make one cast and he's going to eat it or you're going to, you know, or he's not going to eat it and they're going to be gone. So they're extremely spooky um, uh, in a sense that, you know, you, you know, you're sometimes pulling your hair out. You know, there's a hundred fish that were just in the clear water now and they've just disappeared into dirty water, but they're there and they won't touch the fly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Incredible, incredible place. I mean, just experiencing Bhutan and, and seeing, you know, the mentality of, of the nation and the kindness of the people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing place. You know, they, they, measure, they measure success in happiness, not in wealth. So it's pretty amazing to see how welcoming the people are. You know, every single place we went to, the people would come to greet you. And, and, and in the evenings, they would come and sing songs and we would dine with them and eat their local cuisine and so forth. So, Really, really, uh, you know, touching experience. If, if I ever got to do it again, I, it would be beyond my wildest dreams. But, you know, just experiencing that and then catching some big fish, you know, it, it just tops any experience you can ever have. Yeah, those mountains, man, that, that was crazy looking place. And that, I guess they're so protected. You had to have a government official with you while y'all were fishing? So yeah, so the way that it happened is that, you know, Marcy, our world game, you may not fish for them, is illegal to fish for them without their permission of the king. So Ilya um, had donated uh, to a fund uh, for the evacuation of, of children with respiratory issues. So he had donated some money to them. Um, and, and in return, he was allowed to, he was allowed to utilize the helicopter, which the helicopters, which are actually utilized to uh, remove, you know, any sort of uh, medivacs or so forth from these high areas. And uh, yeah, by getting that permission, it enabled us to fish uh, a set of rivers which have uh, golden moss here. So generally, we couldn't even get that permission. And then on the basis of that, obviously, they were, they were documenting whatever we caught and then that was going back to, to help with all the conservation or, or, or uh, 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 not catch uh, fish numbers and so forth. Um, so yeah, from that point of view, it's crazy experience. Yeah, that, that looked that looked great. Um, so, which any new any travel plans coming up? Anywhere new you're going to go check out? No, no, no real travel plans at the moment. Obviously, we're a little restricted in our ability to move, but uh, um, I've uh, I, I've had a plan to fish the Alta River. We're supposed to be fishing the Alta River actually today. So, which is a famous river in, in Norway, which is. Uh, it's basically dead men's shoes. You can't get on the river. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, the world, fa world famous for big Atlantic salmon. Unfortunately, it's been cancelled now two years in a row. Oh, no. So I won't be going this, this year. But hopefully uh, uh, I'll be going this time next year. 
and I'm planning on coming out to IFTD and then hopefully heading across to Mexico and fishing for some um, permit afterwards. But uh, yeah, at the moment, it's a bit of lockdown uh, for me, uh, just trying to sort of uh, stem the flow of, 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 of this, this COVID issues and, and making sure that, uh, that our businesses are all okay and all the conservation efforts are continuing and all our staff are safe. And then we're ready to, uh, um, to get into action again in September. Very cool. So you are, you are planning on coming to the IFTD this year? Yeah, I'm going to be at IFTD. If you guys will let me in the country. I know uh, at the moment, South Africans are frowned upon and all the, the potential uh, things we bring with us. We'll sneak in here. You're Canadian, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got a British passport, but they won't let me either. <laughs> we'll sneak you in. Well, cool. I appreciate you talking to me today. I know you're a busy man. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Uh, really, really good talking to you. Yes, sir. Um, well, I guess we'll hang out in uh, Salt Lake and I'll see you then. Yeah, I hope to see you there. If I, get, if I get the country and go, maybe we should go fishing afterwards. Yeah, we're looking at renting a house up there and going a little early. So if you want to go catch a few trout with us, we'll be we'll be up there. Sounds good. Yeah, Sounds man. great. I'll definitely do that. Well, enjoy those kids today. Yeah, I'm going to go and see if anyone's alive. <laughs> Thanks again, Keith. Take care, man. See you, bud. Bye-bye.